Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to Chapter 92 of the Corona Diaries. And Mr. H, you, you're back from Hamburg. You're back from Hamburg. How are you? I am. I'm back from unscathed from Hamburg and the uh, the German rule book. Got a lot of rules in Germany. Um, I mean, they always did have, but now they've got a pandemic as well. Ooh, they've got a whole new book to throw at you. Um, I think I saw unscathed in Hamburg. <laughs> unscathed. Yeah, I think I think I think they're a bit of a metal band. Yes, lead singer of unscathed. Um, no, it was all right. It, 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 well, it was better than all right. It was a, it was a fantastic show in a in a beautiful building, um, and and I you know having played the cavern, maybe I was just that little bit better re- rehearsed with with the uh, piano playing. Maybe, maybe the chords are a little bit more in my muscle memory, so I had a bit more room in my head uh, to dedicate to the songs. You know, on the on the kind of level of of soul, um, and so it was. You know, it was really good. I don't think I've ever sung "Beyond You" better, and it went down really well. A uh, lot, lot of the Germans said uh, it was the best one ever, and that they'd been to quite a few. So that was nice. Yeah. Mm. Well, I saw a couple of pictures. The venue looked amazing. Mm. No, it was a lovely big church. Uh, unfortunately, although they'd initially sold sold it out at four hundred, the 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 rule book was thrown at them as well, and they were told they could only sell two hundred tickets um, or put two hundred people in the building um, because of the pandemic rules. So there was only two hundred in. It still looked quite busy, but um, it probably looked busy because they were you know spaced out a bit. Um, so that was a shame because, you know, I probably could have had twice or three times that amount of people in, which would have been fantastic. But And, of course, uh, everybody would have made more money um, because I think the, the, the Web Germany actually lost money because of that because they could only sell 200 tickets. Um, I think the costs outweighed... The income, which is a shame. Mm. Yeah, that is a shame. That is a shame, especially when it sounds like such a good night. Didn't affect the rider. There was still lots of plonk backstage. They, they were very generous. There were plenty of gin. There was. There was plenty of gin. There was Beck's. There was all sorts, darling. A variety. I quite like a variety of tonics, um, and and Red Bulls. There must have been about twelve cans of Red, Red Bull. If I'd have drank them, <laughs> Still I, would, be plain now. I would have flown home without the plane. 
<laughs> I quite like a, a, a glass of, of, of Riesling, actually, uh, when, I, when I'm in Germany. Oh, yeah. No, lovely. Yeah. yeah. Very, I'm, very, very, I'm yeah. very fond of the Alsace. Gewürztraminer Traminer is my tipple. Oh. Vendange Tardive. Woof. Get in. Woof. Get in. <laughs> And um, Did you get it, Wolf. Al- Wolf Alsatian. Wolf. <laughs> As the Alsatians say, Wolf. Right, go on then. Right, and you, you also, you also, you, you. Uh, we were just talking about one of the purples, actually, Celia, who was there because you did her an impromptu birthday card, didn't you? Having forgotten her birthday card. Well, yes, I'd, I'd written it. Then I gave it to Frenchie to post at the Racket Club. Then I then I got on a, a reply from a message that I'd sent her saying that she was was coming to the show, so I thought, oh, I'll give it to her by hand. So I got it back off Frenchie before he'd put it in the post, and then I left it in the kitchen. Um, so I had to scribble her something else out instead. But it's been posted now; it's on its way. It went this morning. My yeah. life, my life is just the whirlwind of postcards and postcards. trips to the post office across the green. It's on its way, Sylvia. It's on its way. Um, so you might have worked out, I think we mentioned last week, that we did a diary section last week completely out, well, sl- not completely out, slightly out of sequence, um, because the diary section we're going to do today is an absolute monster. It's about six pages. And for those of you who don't follow it and read it, as, as, as H reads it out, um, we normally do about three pages of diary. It normally takes about 15 minutes to do that diary reading. So... As you can work out, six pages plus is going to be half an hour's worth of diary. So uh, we didn't want to plonk that into a normal episode because it would it would have been an hour and a half long, an hour and three quarters long. So we're going to do it today, and it's it's a big section. But it's, I've read it this morning. I have actually read it this morning, and it's a it's a lovely section. Tells its own nice little story, which is great. Uh, and it's about a gig that you ended up doing in Geneva. Hmm. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, Le Fête d'Espoir. And it's fair to say, before you set off, you didn't really know what you'd said yes to. That'd be fair, would it? Yeah, well, it was it was Pimi, it was Pierre-Michel Mayer, and, uh, and I first met him um, doing promotion trips to uh, Switzerland because he's a sort of a DJ and a... And a a journalist, and he would he, he he was always very memorable because unlike all the other journalists who'd, who'd arrive and go, tell me about your new album, why did you write it, and what does it feel like to step into such large shoes as Fishers and all that kind of shit that they normally well used to ask me back then. Pima used to come and sit down, and he'd go, "Good morning," you go, "Good morning," and you'd take a deep breath, he'd go, "You're dead." They're lowering your coffin into the ground. Uh, there are candles all around, and your very best friends are there to pay tribute to you. And you'd be sitting there going, wow, this is a bit different. Uh, so he was a bit other in his interviewing technique, and so he was a very memorable chap. Uh, and so, yeah, out of the blue, I, I started getting messages from him asking if if I would come and play this show that he's setting up. And I think he'd been very ill and um, I think he'd got cancer and um, he'd stared death in the face a couple of times and then he'd come through it and he was in remission 
And it had been a life-changing event for him, as, as I suppose near-death experiences usually are. And he decided he would raise money uh, and celebrate being alive um, for uh, charitable causes, you know, raise money for, for charitable causes and just generally have a celebration of... He would celebrate his own life. <laughs> While he was well, alive. if you can't celebrate your own life, well, if you can't celebrate it while you're alive, you know yeah. that's the time to celebrate it. In fact, I might have a funeral for myself. Well, I think I think you should I, <laughs> next week. I, I, I'll come. Um, but I mean, you know, that could be a, a, that could be a thing, couldn't it? We could all have funerals for ourselves, you know, while we're still in the <laughs> peak of health. Yes, yes, <laughs> go, I vote for that. Go to the pub, get completely hammered, and everybody could tell you what a great bloke you were. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Well, it, well, it also, I mean, that crazy phrase that people use at funerals where they say, oh, I think I think it's what he would have wanted. Mm. No, he'd want to be here. That's what he'd want. <laughs> he'd he'd want, want burying. He'd have wanted not to have died. That's what he <laughs> be, being alive was probably more probably more preferential to him. Exactly. No. That would be a good message for the gravestone, wouldn't it? <laughs> what I would have wanted yeah. would not, have not to have been dead at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm finding it all a bit sedentary, this death lark. I would have rather been out and about. <laughs> or, anyway. or just, it's too quiet. That would be yeah, quite yes. good for a headstone. Unless you're Bjork, in which case it's going to have to be so, so quiet. <laughs> so, so quiet. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can't see her sitting still, if I'm being honest. No. Um, so let's let's start. Let's start with the diary before we give any more away. Uh, and it's it's a it's a big section. It's four pages, so it's going to be it's going to be a reasonable read. Um, but there's a few surprises along the way, and we'll have a regroup and chat about them. Uh, in about 20 minutes. Right. Let's dive in. Let's do it. Strap in. Get ready. What he, what he wanted. Foot down. Push the button. Saturday, 29th of May. Geneva. La Fête d'Espoir. Some weeks ago, I'd begun to receive cryptic emails from Swiss journalist Pierre-Michel Mayer, or PIMI, inviting me to a self-promoted event in Geneva called La Fête d'Espoir, or Feast of Hope. He was offering to cover my expenses and provide a room in the Hotel Richemont, one of the better Geneva hotels. When I told him I would like to bring Sue along too, he promptly insisted on paying her airfare also. I agreed to sing one or two songs with a local band, who he informed me were top-class players and would have no problem learning the tunes. A couple of days before we were to travel, I received an email from Pimi saying, Oh, by the way, Fish will be there. Do you mind? Woke up at seven to shower and pack for the flight to Geneva at 9.30. We set out with some nervousness as there was a power failure in the terminals at Heathrow yesterday which had cancelled most flights out. Power was resumed now 
but there was a backlog of passengers stranded overnight, so we were expecting some level of chaos upon our arrival at Terminal 2. The journey to Heathrow was most pleasant. It was one of the finest mornings so far this year, with wide open morning skies projecting a certain light which added depth to the fresh spring green hues across the fields and woods of Buckinghamshire as we travelled southeast along the M40. Today Sue's with me for a change, and we were both hoping for some fine weather in Geneva and perhaps an early taste of summer after a long and chilly English spring. We arrived at the airport and parked at the long-stay car park before boarding the courtesy bus to the terminal. Inside it was pretty busy, as we expected. I found the Swiss air desk and queued for ages to pick up our tickets. In front of me stood a tall, gangly figure who looked like he could only be some sort of French rock star, complete with shades perched on top of his head and bandana at the neck. I wondered if he was on his way to the same place as us. Finally managed to collect our prepaid tickets and check in our bag only 20 minutes to take off and made our way to the gate. As we arrived, I was tapped on the shoulder by none other than John Wesley, our ubiquitous old chum, opening act and guitar tech, currently playing guitar with Scottish rock star Derek William Dick, perhaps better known as Fish, my predecessor. I knew that Fish was playing at the gig in Geneva, but didn't realise he would be complete with his own band. Peamy's playing his cards close to his chest in this part. Wes seemed cheerful and relaxed, despite receiving recent news that Fish's forthcoming US tour had to be cancelled, thereby taking out a substantial period of paid employment for the guitar man. Fish was already in Geneva, having flown in the previous evening. We said we'd see Wes on the plane, and in the meantime, I called my sister on the new mobile phone so that she could dial 1471 to find out what the number was and then call me back to let me know. I've since forgotten it again. Sue and I boarded the plane, but were unable to sit together as we checked in so late. I was actually in the seat behind her, so we could still chat, but Wes was up at the back, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him during the flight. We were delayed almost an hour waiting to take off as a consequence of yesterday's backlog of flights, so we arrived in Geneva around two, where we were met at the airport by Claude Baumann, a friend of Pimi, along with Swiss promoter Mark Lambelet and his wife Jana. In arrivals I met more members of Fisher's band, Tony on keyboards and Liz on additional vocals. It turned out that the gangly French rock star was Marc Chance. No, neither had I. And is, as I guessed, on the bill tonight. We were all taken to a cafe where we were originally scheduled to have lunch before departing to soundcheck. As we were an hour behind schedule, it was decided I should go straight to soundcheck while Sue checks into the hotel and relaxes for a couple of hours. We had chance to say a quick hello to hit French band Zebda, already well and truly ensconced at a long cafe table, before climbing back into the minibus. The gig had a peculiar, familiar feeling about it. I think I may have played here before, perhaps with how we live, but I wasn't sure. Pimi showed me first to my dressing room, which was a school classroom up a couple of flights of stairs. I dropped my things and followed him down to the stage, 
where my band for the evening, keyboards Nicholas Hafner, guitar Danny Rusha, bass Javier Hafner, drums Francois Touche, were already sound-checking. I was somewhat nervous about everything, as I was supposed to be doing three songs, which the boys had supposedly already learned, and I was anxious to see if they'd managed it. Hope for the future is full of key changes, and there was much potential for error. We ran through the three songs, No One Can and Waiting to Happen also, and the band were note perfect. I thanked them, and much relieved, went out into the sunshine to wait for the minibus to return me to the Richemont Hotel in the centre of Geneva. As I sat in the sunshine, Pimi sauntered over and explained that one year ago he was diagnosed with a cancer which he feared would kill him. He had received treatment for this, and during that time he'd taken solace in certain music and certain songs. Fortunately, he was recently pronounced to be clear and 100% healthy, so I'd decided that he would invite those artists who he felt had helped his recovery to appear at a show which he would promote for charity. And so, halfway through the day, I finally fully understood why I was here in Geneva. I returned in the minibus to the centre of town where we were delayed at length owing to a parade by Geneva's fire brigade, must be a Swiss thing, which had stopped all traffic. I sweated in the gridlocked heat for 20 minutes, watching the Saturday afternoon shoppers as we edged ourselves around the block to the Richemont. I finally got out, walked the last 100 metres and ducked out of the bright sunlight into the hotel lobby. A stately affair of old wood, leather chandeliers and even an old sedan chair, vulgarised here and there by little glass cabinets containing discreet presentations of diamond-encrusted watches and other Imelda Marcos fripperies, for the purpose, I suspect, of shaming rich blokes into shelling out the Brazilian national debt to impress their mistresses or appease their wives. I was politely told that Mrs Hogarth had checked in and was across the street taking coffee in the park cafe. Sounds good to me. I dropped my bag in the room, not huge but very nice, the room I mean, and got into a pair of shorts, I mean clothes, before returning down to the lobby and across the street into the little park where Sue sat at a table chatting to Claude, our perfect host. I ordered a beer and at last was able to relax for a couple of hours before the return to the gig. We finished up at the cafe and returned to the room to relax and get ready. I was on stage around 9.30, but as this was no ordinary gig, I had agreed to go over to the event and hang out and catch the other artists' performances. We met up in the lobby at 8.30 and were minibussed back to the action. By now the gig was a hum of activity and we were hustled into the VIP artist area where the immediate search for beer began. And sure enough, there he was, resplendent in his army trousers, scraggy grey vest proclaiming the crest of British army forces in Bosnia and topped off by a red beret. In black silk jacket and white shirt I suddenly felt terribly overdressed, like Julio Iglesias sitting down at a table with the Sex Pistols. I told him so by way of apology, and he said, Ah, come on and join us. Sit down and have a beer. You look great. 
Apologies for the Scottish accent. And so the ice was broken. Sue and I joined Fisher's band at a large round table and caught up on each other's news. Ten years worth, I suppose. Sue was introduced to Tammy, Fisher's wife, and the evening passed as any evening might when acquaintances enjoy a chance meeting in the pub and end up making a bit of a night of it. Not long after I sat down, I asked Wares whether or not he could summon up a few extra voices to sing the choruses of Hope for the Future with me. Fish overheard the conversation and jumped straight in. I'll sing it, he said. I wasn't expecting him to want to do this. His set was later in the evening than mine. This meant that the first time he would appear that night was to sing backing vocal for me. Nonetheless, he was up for it and moreover asked me if I would return the favour by singing something with him during his set. We decided that if we were to do Lavender with his band, I could sing The Blue Angel on the end of it. So that was that. Fish seemed very keen to talk to me about the old days when the band were enjoying major league success, but the focus of his attention was always the business issues. He felt the band had been mismanaged during that time, and that that had effectively led to the breakup. As far as I could tell, he no longer bears any animosity towards anyone within Marillion. The same cannot be said for John Arneson, however, our ex-manager, whose very name seems to induce ear-steaming rage. The problem with arriving at a show at 7.30, when you're not on stage till 10, is a predictable one. You end up sitting around drinking a little more than you should. This effect is multiplied somewhat if those hours are spent in the company of a large, sociable Scotsman, and multiplied further if the large Scotsman happens to be fish. He doesn't try to drink a lot, and he doesn't try to get his friends drunk. He just does. By stage time, everyone at our table was five sheets to the wind. Even Dizzy Spell had decided, Oh, come on, it'll be fine, it'll be a good laugh, to sing a BV on Hope for the Future with fish and wares. My stage time slipped back about an hour, which is inevitably the case in festival situations, so I decided to go out into the hall and have a look at the show. I'll come with you, said Fish. At six foot three, with a scarlet beret, he literally sticks out like a sore thumb in any crowd. It was amusing to witness the side glances by various members of the audience and to watch the faces register recognition, doubt, confirmation, confusion, alarm and eventually excitement at the prospect of Marillion's singers standing together in the crowd, affably swapping observations. People inevitably began drifting over to ask us what was happening and we soon realised we weren't going to be allowed to simply stand and watch the show. So we escaped backstage again, and I went upstairs to get myself together for my set. I eventually made my way centre stage and looked out onto a packed room of about a thousand people. The reception was warm, although I suspect half the crowd hadn't a clue who I was. I sang Easter alone at the piano, and then the band joined me for No One Can and Waiting to Happen. Next up was hope for the future, so I beckoned my unlikely backing vocalists, Fish, Wes and Dizzy Spell, and introduced them to an incredulous audience. Musically, it all went pear-shaped from here on. My fault, really. After the first chorus, I let the verse run for an extra four bars before singing verse two. 
This completely threw the house band, who had learned the arrangement mathematically and continued accordingly, four bars out. This, in turn, threw me and my new backing vocalists, who seemed determined to sing as many choruses as they could. The many key changes in the song were shifting the accompaniment to the voices into an overall musical chaos, but nobody much seemed to mind, and I suppose it was appreciated by the crowd as a spirit thing rather than anything that made musical sense. I'm sure those in the crowd who were familiar with the song must have wondered what was going on. I know I was. No real harm done, however. I thanked all concerned and left the stage to much enthusiasm from the wings. Ah, it was great. I really enjoyed that. I was a blast. Gonna come on and sing with me, aren't you? It was turning into a fun evening. I don't remember what happened during the following hour or so during the seemingly interminable wait for Fisher's set. When the band finally mounted the stage, I realised he'd put together a much longer set than mine and it was another hour or so after that before his encore, which was my cue. No doubt about it, he knows how to work a crowd. When he returned to the stage, he introduced Lavender. This is no longer my song. It belongs to me and another guy now. Please welcome him to the stage, Steve Hogarth. I was touched. He sang the song, and I sang the Blue Angel, and then we both sang choruses out together. He with his bare arm around my shoulders, and me tucked underneath, still feeling overdressed for the occasion. An unlikely double act, really. I suppose this moment represents a crossroads at the end of a long and winding road for both of us. Life is strange. There were precious few hardcore Marillion fans in the audience to witness this event, although I did recognise Judith Mitchell from Liverpool in the front row, snapping away with her camera. Everything in show business exists on two levels, the event, i.e. the story, and then the actuality, i.e. what we, the performers, do and remember. I remember it as a bit of fun, which I suspect is how Fish remembers it too. I'm glad it happened, and I'm glad it happened the way it happened, with no planning and no big build-up, i.e. no politics, no marketing opportunity, nothing to live up to or to live down. Fish was a total gentleman throughout, and said and did more than he needed to. If he reads this, I'd like to say thanks for his generosity of spirit. Ironically, from my point of view, the best of the evening was yet to come. After the show was over, we all went downstairs to a dressing room where Zebda were having a bit of a sing-song. One of the band plays accordion, and to the strains of the most French of all sounds, they seem to be singing some old French drinking songs, although I suspect they might have written a couple of them. They encouraged Fish and I to join in on the choruses, and Sue and I hollered away along with all present, without really knowing what the words meant. Zebda, who are more like a gang than a band, are easily as entertaining off-stage as on, and it was a shame that we didn't have more time around them to get to know them better. They insisted we sing a couple of English songs too, so we roared through a couple of old Beatles songs, which, to my mind, didn't work nearly so well as the French tunes, which were all the more fun because we didn't know what we were singing. This rounded off the day perfectly, and we eventually dispersed in various vehicles back to the centre of Geneva and to bed. I asked Fish and Tammy if they were planning to go on to a club. He replied, 
Ach, I can't stand the pace anymore, man. I need my early nights these days. It was 2am. And we're back. For the first time today, because we'll be back twice. We're back uh, full of pure with, thoughts. With, with pure thoughts. Mm. Nothing to do with cricketers and jacuzzis. No. Nope. And, 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 and that's an episode you're never going to hear. Or girls anyway. rhyme with them. Yes. So that was Geneva. That was this gig. That is one hell of a day. Yes. One hell of a day. Yes. So I'm... I've got questions. Oh, right. I've got, I've got questions. We, we better start with, I mean, the first, the first bit of the diary, and you get into the airport, there's been issues at, at um, whichever one it was, Heathrow, get with it, whichever Heathrow, one it was. Yeah. Heathrow, yeah. Heathrow with the power. Power out. So, um, but you get there, and the first person you bump into is Wes, John Wesley. Because mm. mm. he's yeah. obviously playing in Fisher's Band, isn't he, at that point? Yeah, he must have been en route from America then, coming through Heathrow to get on the, the plane to Geneva with us. So that must have been nice to to bump into him because he'd done at least a couple of tours with you at that point, hadn't he? Yeah, we 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 grew to know Wes really well because he'd he'd uh, opened for us on two or three tours. He'd also um, guitar teched for us, mm. and then I think he'd done both. He'd opened for us and guitar teched, which uh, something of a tour de force, um, you know, um, for him. And uh, a very a very pleasant human being, John Wesley mm. Durth. Uh, nice fella, um, you know, re- re- really sociable, really humble. Um, uh, it was always good having and a good laugh, you know. Um, so it was always nice having him around. Mm. I met him for the first time a couple of tours ago because uh, he he did some support. What well, two or three years ago now, didn't he? He came back and did a maybe it's a bit longer. Um, but yeah, really, really nice fella. And then you get there, and um, you're a little bit concerned about the band uh, as to how they're going to be. But it turns out the band were pretty good. Um, the band that he'd arranged for you. Hmm. Yeah, it's always amazing if to go to another country, you know, where the people speak another language and everything, and 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 they know your stuff. It's it's a funny feeling. It was the same when I went to to Rome uh, to to do that show with um, with the Frog Band, what are they called? Uh, I don't mean French. I mean they're no. called uh, Rain a Strain or Rain a Strain, which means um, strange frog uh, in, um, in in Italian. And uh, Ricardo, um, who's who's played with Steve Rothery a lot on keyboards. He he's he's their keyboard player and they're a really good band. And I went to Italy and walked straight into a rehearsal room with them and they knew all the stuff and all I had to do was sing on it and it, it was it was well, it was flattering. Mm. Uh but it was also really amazing to just walk into a room and people know your your music. Um that's great. And yes, this lot uh, in Geneva, um, they they seem to have it all down. I mean, they they'd, I guess they'd had to learn it. Whereas I think Ronnie Strain just knew it. So quite something. Mm. No, that also yeah, because you did did sound like you were a little bit concerned. 
beforehand, but then quite yeah, I relieved. just assumed it would be awful. Yeah, so it was almost quite a relief when they struck up. Just assumed in, it'd be in awful. the right key <laughs> with roughly the right chords. Roughly the right chords at roughly the right speed. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't without incident, obviously, but but it, it was it was it was it was good for the most part. It was good. Which actually prompts a completely unrelated question, actually, because I know a lot of artists have done this. Have you ever gone anywhere and effectively used your own backing tracks? Donald Campbell's funeral. Uh, yes, because you talk about that in the diary, don't you? And then we've done TV shows where, and we did a festival in Poland, the one the one I did with, um, you know, when Hugh and Cry and Alison Moye were on and all of that. Um the Sopot Festival in Poland. Um, that was backing track. Very often with TV, they just... TV folk just aren't kind of... They're not geared up for recording a band. would have, you know, a no. lot of inputs. Uh, we, we typically need about 36 inputs. Um, of of audio and they they can't get their head around it and so and there's never the time either they they work to such a tight schedule and bam bam yeah. bam 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 and are you ready right you're on um, that they need something they can turn around really quickly and for that reason they usually want a backing track even if you're hell bent on playing they go oh no no no, no. can we have a backing track can we have a backing track so um, the band usually end up miming. Yeah. But if the singer insists on singing it live, they, they can normally they, do that. They can cope with that. So more often than not, when I've done televisions, uh, I've sung the vocal live, and the the band have just mimed. Right. I was thinking more of where where you might go somewhere on your own, and just take something with you. You've been asked to do a track somewhere, or a couple of songs somewhere, and you just take a. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done that. No. Because that was a thing for a while, wasn't it? I know quite a lot of artists did that for a while. They had a, they do they do personal appearances and they just do backing track things. I never I never liked the idea if I was being honest. Well, it's a bit of a con if you're selling tickets. I yeah. think, you know, I don't know. Is it? I don't know. I guess if you've if you're there singing, uh, provided the people know what they're buying a Signing ticket to, to see, yeah, yeah, then then maybe it's not a con. So anyway, back to Geneva. You you see the band, um, great. You go back. You spend a couple of hours um, with Sue. Um, you know, ni- nice beer and sunshine sounds quite nice. And then you head to the gig. At which point you bump into Fish. Hmm. Yes. Yes, we were all uh, we were all sort of relaxing in. Uh, there was like a cafe that was. It wasn't a backstage area. It was a cafe on the side of the gig or something. And he was at the table and uh, we arrived and he called me over. You know, and he was in fine form. He was in good spirits and it was all very pleasant. We had a nice uh, we had a nice time. And um, what happened? I was asking, that's right, I was asking Wes if... Um, if he knew if if he if they'd got any backing singers with them, had they got any singers that could sing um, "Carrying a Message"? Because I was going to do uh, "Hope for the Future," 
because the gig was called the Feast of Hope, so it seemed it seemed like the right the right song to do. Um, so I was trying to garner together some proper backing singers, and of course Fish got wind of that and said, "I'll do it. I'll get up. I'll sing a PVs." So I thought, oh, I couldn't couldn't really go. No, not you. I couldn't really say that. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I said, well, well are you sure? <laughs> I'll be great. Come on, we'll all, we'll all get up and do it. And he was quite right. It was great. Um, it had a great spirit um, because we got everyone up, you know. I think we got most of his band up and, and our uh, wives and girlfriends and, you know, any, any anybody, any family members that were around, they all got up as well and sang it and got around all got round a mic, which gave it a great a great feeling. So it was a really good call, um, and much better than a couple of pro backing vocalists, which which would have been fine, but a bit stiff. Um, and then of course uh, he wanted he wanted me to get up and sing a, a BV with him. Um, then. Uh, I can't remember which. I think maybe he wanted me to sing all my circles with him. So he, it he, was it was lavender. Oh, was it lavender? Right. Okay. So he said, "Ah, oh, yeah. Oh, you can sing verse one, and I'll sing verse two, or, or the other way around, or what, whatever you know." Um. So we did that. Um. And nobody. It wasn't advertised that it was going to happen. Nobody knew it was going to happen. And that's the only time we've ever performed together. Uh, and it was impromptu, you know, so that was quite cool. There's a lovely bit where you mention that it's one of those things, and you've mentioned this before, actually. You've said this a little bit about the early H-Band shows, that actually there the weren't that many people there who would have expected that to be happening. Um, so it, it's one of those things that goes down in in kind of folklore, yeah, nobody expected it to be happening. I didn't expect it to happen, and I was doing it. So there was certainly no one in the crowd that, that saw that coming. Um, I mean, they might have hoped. They, you know, they might have then seen that we were both on the, on the same bill and that, oh, what if they do a song together? But that, it, it, was, it was never um, broadcast that that would be a thing that was going to happen. Um, I don't know how many people even knew what the lineup of the artists was mm. for Fet de Spark because it was all sort of a bit cobbled together. Um, I remember, I remember that Liverpoolian girl Judith being there, um, so she caught it. So there were there were there was just a handful of of Brits in the audience that must have got to hear about it that that, that were there and witnessed it. But they couldn't have known it was going to happen. Mm. Mm. And it and it seems like what comes across in the diary is it seems like one of those days where things you you, you sit down, you have a drink, um, everybody's getting on really well. The the you know the the vibes really nice. Like you say, you say, well, can anybody sing BVs on on Hope for Future? Then it's will you? Oh, well, okay. Will you come and sing B? And it all happened really organically, really naturally, and it just seemed to be. The day just happened the way the day happened, and it was always kind of meant to be that way. Yeah, it was. That was exactly it. 
none of that was uh, part of a plan. Unless it was part of a devious plan in Peamy's head, you know, and he thought, well, I'm, I'm going to get these two together and see if something happens. Um, there could have been a, there could have been a, an, an element of dodgy Swiss manipulation going on. Surely but, not. The Swiss. We, surely, we were... <laughs> surely not. <laughs> yes. Watchmakers, aren't they? Uh, uh-huh. Good with syn- synchronicity. Uh, chocolatiers. <laughs> he didn't have chocolatiers. <laughs> oh, I'll cross him over. <laughs> you come off stage then um, at whatever time of night um, and what you end up playing, you end up singing backstage with this French band with a load of accordions. Oh, yeah, I remember. They were great. They were fantastic. They're, yeah, what were they called? Well, it's all in the diary. Zebda. Yeah, I know you've just said it, but it's Zebda. Zebda. Yeah, they were fantastic. They were like incredibly French, you know, with that relentless sort of French happy-go-lucky spirit. And they were all really good musicians. And they were the kind of people who would just, when they weren't on stage playing music, could be off stage playing music. They just never stopped. And they were in the they were in the backstage area with their accordions, playing all these sort of French singing, uh, drinking songs where, where you know you, you all join in with a da 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 da, you know, in, in the choruses. <laughs> so everybody was like da da da. You had forgotten about them. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, it did. That did sound like the perfect end to the day, actually. Yeah. No, that was that was one of those special. It's probably perfectly normal if you if you're French, but if you're English, it was really special. It, it it's almost a bit like what you expect if you're on the road with the Pogues. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. That someone would pick a banjo up and you know four hours later. Yes, the, the set of <laughs> set, set of barrel of Guinness. Yeah, and and uh, and all hell would ensue. Right, we'll leave it there because that's just the end of the piece, um, and then we've got one more section to go, which covers the next day. So we'll do that. We'll have a little bit of chatter after that, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Here comes the next day. Sunday, 30th of May, Geneva. We had a lie-in and I met up with Pimi and Isabel around lunchtime. Pimi had reserved a table outside a cafe round the corner for about 12 of us and so we wandered round in the sunshine and sat down along with Fish, Tammy, Wes, Tony, Liz, Mark, Yana, Claude, Pimi and Isabel. We had a pleasant light lunch during which I chatted to Fish about the pros and cons of self-management and the general trials and tribulations of the music business. Claude told me that he owns a small boat and that, if we were interested, we might like to join him and his wife Elizabeth on Lake Geneva this afternoon. I said we'd love to and so he left lunch early and went home to fetch his boat. We eventually said bye to Fish, Wes and all, who had another acoustic gig in Switzerland tonight as part of a small acoustic tour. 
Pimi doesn't like the water, and so he and Isabel said they would see us back at the hotel around tea time for our departure to the airport. We walked around the corner to the promenade by the lake and a short distance to a little jetty where a bikini-clad Elizabeth was waving to us from a speedboat. Claude was the very picture of continental high living at the wheel of the little motor launch in his wraparound shades. We climbed aboard and I sat up front with Claude while the girls reclined at the back. Suddenly I felt wealthy. We cruised across the lake, taking in the view of the expansive lakeside houses and chateaux, the green valleys and snow-peaked mountains beyond. The weather was still sunny and the sky was open and blue. Many of the lakeside buildings are embassies or owned by impossibly rich Arabs, Claude informed me. It really was a vision of alpine paradise. There was only one thing missing. Beer. Claude and I were unanimous in this, but the problem was short-lived. He said he knew of a cafe where we could moor the boat and he could get some refreshments. We pulled up to a little jetty alongside yet more postcard-pretty houses, surrounded by flowers and hung with climbing roses and Claude hopped off the boat, looking like Yves Saint Laurent, to return with beer and sodas. We motored back to the centre of the lake, cut the engine, and drifted in the sunshine, swapping life stories and drinking beer. One of those good-as-it-gets moments that have been absent for quite a while now. All too soon, it was time to return. So Claude wound up the revs and we set off back at high speed, which involved everyone getting soaked in the spray. We wished Claude and Elizabeth well, could it get much better, and returned along the promenade where we bought ice creams before arriving back at the Richemont. There was still enough time for fruit juices on the terrace with Pimi, Isabel and some of the boys from Zebda. Pimi told me he'd interviewed Catherine Deneuve at this very table a few years back. Hard life here in Geneva. We returned in a Mercedes to Geneva Airport, which is a bit of a disappointment of an airport, considering Switzerland's wealth, not a patch on Heathrow or the brilliant Barcelona, where I went to the gents to change out of my shorts and back into trousers for England. I can't remember the flight back at all, which I guess is a sure sign of a job well done by Swiss Air. This is your captain speaking. Please fasten seatbelts as we've commenced the descent into London Heathrow, where the weather is raining and we have a ground temperature of a chilly 6 degrees. We have low cloud all the way down. Thank you for flying Swiss Air. Perhaps Swiss restraint prevented him from adding that he couldn't for the life of him understand why we'd left Geneva to come here. Looking back, I'm reminded of a moment on the boat in the middle of that perfect Sunday afternoon on Lake Geneva when Elizabeth gazed out across the water, across the green valleys and up through the wispy cirrus clouds to the faraway snowy peak of Mont Blanc and innocently inquired of us, have you ever thought of living in another country apart from England? Now, why ever would we want to do that? And we're back for the second time. And that was the day after the night before, or the day after the day before. Oh, well, they yeah. all are. Yeah, we intend to. 
uh, in a very linear kind of way. Um, and obviously you meet up with um, with everybody again in the morning so that you, you see Fish in the Band again in the morning for a little bit of a coffee and a, and a, a, a bit of a chat. So, you know, the, the, the vibe's still running through, which sounds quite nice. And then you then you toddle off to, to have a little uh, motorboat around on the lake. Yes, that was delightful. It was... Um it was a pleasant day. It was quite warm. Uh, maybe it was hot. It, it was sunny. Yeah, it was. It, it was really lovely. And we went out on the boat. What was his name? Can you remember? Uh, I can. I can have a look. You can fill in all the. I, I can have a, a lovely look. Fella. Claude. Claude. It was Claude. Yes. Claude he, and Elizabeth. Claude and his wife Elizabeth. Yes. Mm. Um, he must have been a good friend of Peamy's because I, I I'd never met him before. I must have met him. Uh, backstage at the show and he you know quite late in the evening he said oh tomorrow will be a lovely day and I think I will take the boat out on the lake would you care to join join us and I went yeah um and so we we set it up and we went and found him at the uh pre-arranged place at, at I think it was about 10 in the morning which was a bit was a bit stiff getting up that early um, of course, this is probably rubbish in terms of the facts, as you know. Uh, but the way I remember it uh, was like that. And we met up and we uh, we floated about on Lake Geneva on his boat and he'd, he'd caught beers and it was just wonderful. It was blissful. And Lake Geneva is. I mean, I, I've had the good fortune to go a number of times to, to Montreux, to the Jazz Festival, and you land in Geneva and you take the train along the lake out to Montreux, which is kind of down towards the other end of the lake. And it is beautiful. Mm. Uh, every town you go through, you know, with all its lake apartments and what have you, are just absolutely, absolutely glorious. Mm. Um, there's no other word for it. And on the on the sides of the lake, they the, it's, um, it's vineyards, just full of vineyards all the way down. Because um, the Swiss make fantastic wine, but you don't find out about it because they don't actually export it. Right, they keep it they to drink themselves. It. Yeah, they export the chocolate though, don't they? Oh uh, yeah, they do well with the chocolate. Yeah. But I think I think obviously the issue with the the, the wine is the limited amount of grapes. <laughs> Chocolatiers. Engineers. <laughs> <laughs> um but no, it is a spectacular, spectacular spot. <laughs> you just you're just laughing about chocolatiers now, aren't you? I can see them. <laughs> That's the trouble. They're probably in those sets. Do you remember those sets you used to get at Christmas with like a pipe and a cigar oh, yeah, and things yeah. in chocolate? You probably got some chocolatiers in one of them. Yes. <laughs> we can't keep it together for a whole episode, can we? No. It's never going to happen. <laughs> what were you and saying? Well, no, I was going to say, oh, and then wine. you finish. Vineyard. The wine. Yes, yes, lots of it. And then you finish off, you have a nice toddle about on the lake, you finish off, and then you head back and make a point of saying how disappointing Geneva Airport is. And for anybody who's been, and I've been through it quite a lot, you're dead right, it's a really disappointing airport. Nothing there. No, no. It's like, it's like a little regional airport. Maybe it's got better. It might no, have... Well, not last time I went, oh, I don't no. know, a, few, a couple of years ago. I've not been there for quite a while, I don't think. Um, can't no. remember last time I was in Geneva. I really can't remember. 
Okay, maybe. maybe we ought to take TCD out on the road just up and down that stretch of Lake Geneva. That would be a nice way to spend a couple yeah, of Yeah, in the south of France. Yeah, that, well, we can do that down, as well, can't we? On Tube and Nice. And yeah. Do you fancy doing it on the train? Monaco. I've always fancied doing a bit of toddling around Europe on the train. Ah, oh, it'd be wonderful. Yeah, it's the only way to travel, especially mm. in Europe, because then, you know, some of those European trains have got excellent restaurant cars and you can, you know, with proper, proper, proper good food, mm. not egg and cress sandwiches. No. Proper, proper chefs with those big hats. Proper food, proper chef, big hat, chocolate ears. Chocolate ears. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that. We should do that. <laughs> it's very rare we both lose it at the same time <laughs> well, well on that note on that ear of course it, the big hat keeps falling down doesn't it when the ears melt over the oven <laughs> as soon as you said that I knew you would as soon as you said the big hat keeps falling down I thought well yeah of course because the ears will keep melting exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> got to cut. Some, Terrible when your ears melt. Cut some aisles in it then, so you can see out. <laughs> oh, it's all going a bit. Who cooks clan here? We better stop there What's before going we get into on with trouble. The chef, you go, oh, chocolatiers. Oh, I see. <laughs> Let's leave it. Let's leave it there, right? Because I'm desperate to hear what the crewcast is. <laughs> Yeah, Toblerone advert probably or something. I'll leave it with me. Right, I'll leave it with you and I'll see you next time. All righty. Thank you for listening, folks. Thank you, Iris Butts. Thank you, Dale Cleaver. Thank you, Martin Neusterhuis and Juan Pablo Gonzalez for subscribing to TCD. Walking in the park Dreaming of a spark When I saw the sprinklers shimmer Whisper in the haze of summer lawns Then I heard the children sing They were running through the rainbows They were singing a song for you Well it seemed to be a song for you the song I wanted to write for you For you Laughing dark blue Laughing dark green When I am king You will be queen a penny for your thoughts, my dear A penny for your thoughts, my dear I owe you for your love I owe you for your love 
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.